Welcome to the Respect the Math podcast brought to you by Reliable Tech Help. For all your IT needs, call Reliable Tech Help at 502-797-7399 or visit our website at reliabletech, that's T-E-K, help.com. I'm your host, Digital David Snyder. Here at the Respect the Math podcast, we talk about everything from technology to business, science, popular culture, and more. You can find us on Facebook, YouTube, and podcast apps from Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, iHeart, and others. If you like what you hear, please like it and or subscribe. Please interact with, with us. We'd love to hear from you. Today, our guest is the, the current chairman of the philosophy department at the University of Louisville. His name is Professor Avery Kohlers. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. It's a real honor to have you on here. A little background. I am a, an alumni of the University of Louisville, uh, the philosophy department specifically, and every day I use that skill that some people might question the validity of uh, in my relationships, my business dealings, just life in general. It taught me how to uh, think critically and solve problems, expose me to a lot of different worldviews and ways to view things. So I'm grateful for that every day. And it's a real honor and a privilege to have you on here. So uh, introduce yourself to the audience and talk about your background and uh, let's go. Wonderful. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. Yeah, so um, thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. Um, so my name is Avery Kohlers. I've been at UofL since um, 2000. I got here in the fall of 2000 and I am uh, now in the 2020, the pande first pandemic semester, I became chair of the department when the chair became the dean uh, of arts and sciences. And um, uh, so we've been through the last couple of years, we've been through some, you know, financial uncertainty and uncertainty about whether students could stay in school, could finish, um, how we were going to teach our classes between online and in person. So, th so it's been a, it's been a, I wouldn't say rough, but it's been an up and down um, and some high intensity couple years. Hopefully it's unprecedented uh, moving forward. Hopefully this will be the last bump in the road of this size you guys encounter, right? Yeah. yeah I mean, th things that seemed like once in a century before seem to not be so infrequent anymore. It seems like it. Yeah. Yeah. But um, uh, I came here from the University of Arizona where I did my PhD in Tucson and um, I'm originally Canadian uh, from Toronto, Canada. Well, we won't hold that against you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, the, the Philadelphia 76ers fans, I think, will hold it against me, but everybody else maybe might not. So. Raptors, <laughs> yeah. Sixers kind of thing? Yeah, okay. exactly. Did you follow basketball much? Or? No, the Raptors oh. only, only arrived after I'd, uh, after I'd left for college. So, um, okay. so I grew up with the Leafs and the Blue Jays, basically. And, okay. Um, yeah, life you, and death. Uh, you have dual citizenship? Or? I do, indeed. Oh, yeah. cool. Make it back to yeah. Canada very often? or uh, You know, uh, up until the pandemic, it was at least once and sometimes twice a year. Um, yeah. And my family comes down to visit uh, at least once and sometimes twice a year. But then um, we had a, a long break during the pandemic. But I've been back now, um, well, twice, once for work and once for family since okay. the pandemic. Okay. Do you speak French? I do, but oh, it's, oui. it's been, it's a bit rusty, so I won't, uh, I won't uh, offend the ears of any francophones. Yeah. Who are well, listening. Yeah, so tell us about your academic background. Were you always a thinker, always challenging ideas and asking questions? And when, um, when did that start? Yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, the reason I originally chose uh, philosophy as a major, it was my second major. And I, I started out, uh, I was a political science, international relations major. And um, I was looking, I was studying um, uh, like uh, peace and uh, diplomacy in the Middle East was the thing I was focused on. And um, and uh, I wanted a second major because students want second majors. And I thought, well, the two hardest classes I'd taken my first year, my first couple years in college were philosophy and history. 
So I decided I had to conquer one of them. Yeah. And it was almost random that it was philosophy instead of history. I mean, I never conquered it, unfortunately. So I'm still still pushing the rock still up. Still conquering? <laughs> yeah. Something like that. It's still being conquered. Yeah. Um, but uh, but then what happened was studying the, the kinds of uh, arguments that get made in the di- diplomacy, you know, politics sphere, especially, you know, in the Middle East, that was the time, was the 90s, the time of the Oslo uh, negotiations and so on. Um, it really struck me that I was uh, I was interested more in the normative questions underlying the, the political positions than I was in the in the sort of the who was who had the upper hand right now questions mm-hmm. and or how to gain the upper hand what the strategies were to gain the upper hand the game the game right yeah. right and what's funny is I do some philosophy of games now so oh. <laughs> but we can talk more about that but yeah. Um, but yeah it was it was it was they're talking about. When they make claims against each other, they don't just say, I want this. They appeal to values. Yeah. And if we could talk honestly about those values, then maybe we could make some progress. And so that made me think that that was what I needed to study was the underlying normative questions. And what branch of philosophy would that fall under? Would that be ethics or would that be logic or some of uh, uh, some of both? Or Yeah, so if you, if you consider sort of the universe of philosophy, people would put ethics under... Uh, value theory which includes ethics and aesthetics so it's like how to how to understand value terms and where in aesthetics it's where beauty is is it in the world is if it is it merely in the eye of the beholder is it are we recognizing something and discerning something when we see aesthetic qualities and then um, on the ethics side of value theory it's like where are uh, moral values do they exist in the world why do they have authority over us um uh, you know, can we, is the, is it something we can agree on universally uh, mm-hmm. or is it something that we're stuck within a particular local culture? Um, and then within ethics, you get branches and social political philosophy is usually considered a branch of ethics because, oh. because we look at um, uh, political uh, arrangements and say, well, what, what gives, a, a, what gives a right to claim authority to that group over this territory or over these people, mm-hmm. you know, uh, these people say that this is our property. They're making a claim on it. Well, ha- what value does that claim have? That yeah. kind of thing. So those are, those are still moral claims, but they have real political force. And so our political, our politics and our political, um, p- policies that we advocate and put in place are a reflection of our values. So- yeah, to an I mean, extent. Yeah, right. And so you'd hope, right? So there, there may, there in many <laughs> cases there are there are divergences between what we think is right and what we the policies we live under. Right. And a lot of that, like, there's problems of knowledge, problems of who's motivated more, and so on. Um, I th- you think of things like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, mass incarceration. I think most people, I think, are I don't know, I don't have polling data most people think that something's wrong with our criminal justice system but there's just a difficulty of getting you know actions to follow values right so we have that problem getting actions to follow values um but then there are also problems of having values that we haven't thought through and so we might have um so for instance going back to the criminal justice issue some people might have very punitive worldviews and want um want our uh criminal justice institutions to be more punitive, whereas other people might have less punitive worldviews and want them to be less punitive. That's a value difference. And hopefully we can talk about those value differences and try to see what motivates us to believe one or the other. Mm -hmm. Uh And so the fascination isn't even so much with 
what you decide decide your value is the process you use to decide it what logic is underlying that and how, how does that connect to uh policy and uh social issues and that kind of thing do you do you find being a philosopher i'm assuming are you tenured at the yes. okay yeah. so you have a little freedom there to kind of pursue the things you want that's kind of the idea of tenure yeah i know there's a lot of misinformation out there about that a lot of people particularly on the right politically will say well these you know these academics have a job for life and they can do whatever they want well the other side of that is the te- tenure gives them the benefits and the income and the position the stability they need to go off and to pursue the, their own academic uh, their interests right right and we want that because look how much you know has come out of people free relatively free to pr- pursue what interests them and ultimately you ultimately you would hope the things that people are naturally interested in and want to pursue will yield the best benefits for them and ultimately for society right yeah do you feel that you have the freedom to be a little more from an activist standpoint also uh in your department because i know that sometimes depending on what side of the aisle you're on uh, can determine the uh, the sensitivity or the uh, the tolerance for that. Can you talk about that? Right. Yeah. Sure. So um, tenure is a very specific kind of job security. So uh, it, it's really ultimately it it just turns you from an at will employee to a with cause employee. So you you can still be fired if you have tenure. It's just that, that you, they have to show cause to fire you, mm-hmm. um, unless they eliminate your whole department, in which case they can fire you in ten days' notice, which is uh, yeah. shocking. Um, but anyway, uh, so what tenure does is it protects uh, free inquiry, as you say. It doesn't protect you from like charges of sexual harassment or assault or whatever, right? Anything that w- that an employee who can be fired with cause can be fired for, a tenured person can be fired for. So, um, so what tenure does is it protects um, academic freedom and freedom of uh, of inquiry, as you suggest, and mm-hmm. um, and that it it has a few. Uh, knock-on benefits. So one of them is the freedom to fail. Mm. So I've had research projects. Like I, f- I feel like I'm not. I have no complaints about my career. I've published and I'm, I'm happy and I want to keep publishing. Yeah. But there have been some major failures. You know, things that I, I worked a long time on and didn't get anything out of it in terms of publications. Um, having tenure makes it possible for me to try something that's risky. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's a shame. I've learned a lot in the process. Now I ha- I'm going to have to move on because this isn't going anywhere, yeah. but, um, but I can. So, so that kind of uh, freedom to fail is really important, in, especially in a creative uh, or research-based field where the nature of the beast is you set out on a project not knowing whether it's going to bear fruit, right? Mm. So think of all the people who immediately started studying infectious diseases in spring of 2020, mm. right? we've we've heard about a few of the real great breakthroughs but if you look at the that spring of 2020 there must have been 50 or 100 universities that had initial agreements to market some agent that the, uofl was one of them some agent that they thought would would uh, be the um, like a treatment for covid or either oh, a treatment oh. or a vaccine right? okay and so uh, uofl uh, got a marketing agreement with a company to um to start developing this, um, this mm-hmm. I think it was, a, was a, a vaccine of a type that's worked for some cancers mm. that was developed at UofL. It didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Right? How can you know that it's going to succeed when you start? You can't, right? It's not like, um, it's not like a job where, where you know exactly what the outcome is and you know exactly how to produce it. Yeah. Um, and so that, that freedom to fail, tenure is crucial for buying people that freedom to fail. And then the second is that uh, freedom of inquiry um, and freedom of, uh, or academic freedom to teach what 
where, where you think the field requires you to teach. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I can give uh, the example of uh, laws that it didn't, in the end, um, pass, but there was a law in Kentucky, in the Kentucky legislature, that would have extended a so- so-called critical race theory ban to teaching in uh, higher education. Mm. And um, so what what that prevents is if somebody thinks that there's an important analysis of the way the legal system works. So critical race theory in a very small nutshell mm-hmm. is this uh, view that the, the prime driver of continued um, worse outcomes, particularly for African-Americans in the United States, but for other people of color as well, um, is not the individual um, meanness or discrimination or racism of particular people, mm-hmm. but it's baked into our institutions in important ways. Mm-hmm. And so then uh, critical race theory um, or people developing that line of thought will then have, then study those institutions and ask, well, how is race baked into this in a way that doesn't seem obvious, right? So, mm. um, so if, I, if I think, and as I do, if I think that is an important insight about some of our institutions, then I need to be able to uh, first pursue that without fear of retaliation and then teach it if it's true, right? Or if, mm. if there's good reason to think that it's true, so that if, if I'm teaching, like, there are two or three different theories about why racial, racial stratification persists, let's say. Mm-hmm. I need to be able to teach that as one of the theories because it's a going possibility that that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's what uh, tenure achieves, that the freedom to inquire and the freedom to teach about where the state of inquiry is. And there's parallels there, too, to living in a free society, right? P- people should be free with... Um well, certain restrictions, you can't go y- yell uh, fire in a crowded theater or right. threaten someone's life. But, you know, in a democracy, a free society, people should be free to pursue the things that make them happy and that they're curious about. Right. Uh, I find myself on the political spectrum really confused uh, for, for most people because social issues, I'm moderate moderate liberal to liberal on those. But then as an entrepreneur and a guy who's built four businesses and uh, had some success, I look at the um, fiscal part of it and I'm more conservative, um, you know, you mentioned uh, the freedom to fail. Uh, you know, I don't, there's plenty of reasons to not like big, pharm, big pharma, right, uh, charging this or that for, for this life-saving treatment. But what people don't talk about is the countless research that they do, the countless experiments that they do that all fail, that they invest millions and billions of dollars into, right. and they might get one out of 100 that actually get, actually passes the testing process, then gets FDA approval, and then gets into the marketplace to make some money. If you want that on the back end, you've got to give them the freedom and the incentive on the front end to develop and ask questions and right. be curious, right? And so that, you know, it, it just doesn't uh, apply to an academic setting. It applies to um, a civil setting for anybody, a business or an individual in a, uh, in a free market. Um, I wanted to mention the Supreme Court ruling, ruling recently. Are you comfortable in talking about that? Uh, yeah. I have tenure. I'm comfortable talking about anything. Perfect. <laughs> the re- reason I mention that is um, the first thing is I think we would, uh, the world would be a lot better place if we were all just a little more curious about each other. You know, you and I might disagree on this or that political issue, and we might have uh, an interesting, heated discussion about it, but I'm never going to insult you or say you're a bad person because you disagree with me. Um, I think uh, it was Walt Whitman, I think, said, be less judgmental and be more curious. You know, I just wish people were more curious. And so I've been told from a very young age, you don't talk about religion and politics. And I've always said, well, those are the things I'm most interested in, right? Who, what, what, 
what type of a conversation are you going to have if it doesn't include at least some of those things, right? right. So I wanted to bring up the, um, the the abortion thing. I consider myself to be an old school feminist, and that is derived from my underlying philosophy, basically that humans have certain rights that we, we should cherish, the freedom of expression, speech, uh, freedom to practice any religion or no religion that you want, basic dignity of you know, economic opportunity, access to health care, um, you know, things like that, uh, protection from being, you know, uh, murdered or having your property stolen, that kind of things, you know, basic things. And so when I say old school feminism, I don't mean neo-feminism. I mean uh, people like Christina Hoff Summers, uh, who was kind of ran out of academia because she wrote a book saying that boys have certain traits and girls have certain traits and they're different. Um, I feel about, or I kind of got off on a tangent there, but I want to bring up this issue as a person who is a firm believer in fundamental human rights, therefore I'm an old school feminist, we've fought for centuries in this country to get women on a level playing field. And I am very sympathetic personally to the pro-life movement. I think that there's a strong argument that can be made that there's a life there and that life has value and we should protect it. However, the mother is a life too, right? And she has certain rights. And I think that uh, even if Roe versus Wade is overturned and then there's the Casey decision, I'm I'm worried about that. I think it's going to set back women's rights uh, quite far back, but that also impacts us. It just doesn't impact women. A threat to their rights and their freedoms and their protections is a threat to ours, right? Can you you talk about that? Um, Yeah, I mean, I guess I I share your... uh, your view that uh, the right to control one's bodily autonomy is uh, about the most basic fundamental right there is. If there's if there's no uh, if there's no sort of sovereignty over over everything inside the skin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, then there's nothing. Um, and so uh, it. So you know, I guess I. Uh, so I, I mean, I think it sounds like we we have. A similar view on what the court should decide, or if the court makes the decision it looks like it may well make, mm-hmm. then um, then how legislatures should respond. Um, but uh, um, I guess the, what what's strange about uh, uh, abortion politics is is that, and I, this is kind of implied by what you're saying, so much is made to ride on the question of whether a fetus is a life, mm-hmm. and I think th- that is. That is such an obviously, that's so, so obviously not the right question. Um, because, of course, fetuses are alive, right? Uh, yeah. there's, a, there's a difference between a living fetus and a dead fetus, right? Mm-hmm. That's, and, it's, and it's often tragic and horrible when, you know, when there's a, a, a stillbirth or um, a fetus dies in utero. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly it's, it's alive. That's just not the relevant question when it comes to abortion the the relevant question is does this person have autonomy over their body um and i think another a a layer to that is shouldn't a human being have the right to go to their doctor and have a private conversation and consultation about their health right i mean we 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 hold sacred the notion of um doctor uh, patient confidentiality this would violate that i mean how you know is there every uh, you know, OBGYN clinic going to be monitored by some abor- abortion enforcer. I mean, it just doesn't, for so many reasons, uh, it, it deeply impacted me when I heard that that came out a couple of days ago. 
Um, and I think it's important for people to realize if it affects a category of people that you're not in, that affects you too. Right. Um, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes with free speech. I wanted to bring up my, um, I, I think I have a clever solution to the abortion issue as a whole. Would you like to hear it? Before it. <laughs> like you said, it's a false flag to argue over whether that's a life or not, right? That's not the point of the argument, but so many people are hung up on that, right? For me, if I needed a replacement ear right now, some doctor somewhere could swab the DNA in my mouth and grow me a replacement ear in a Petri dish, right? You're telling me we don't have the medicinal technology and the know-how to extract a child from someone who doesn't want it and bring it to term artificially or even maybe do a, an implant into the womb of someone have, trying to have a child. You never hear people on the political extremes on both sides of that bring anything like that up. That right. would resolve the ethical concerns that the right has, and it would resolve the obvious concerns the left has of forcing someone to have a child they don't want to have. Uh, I think it's also important to mention, too, that there, there are there are cases, there are obviously outliers and unusual, where giving birth will kill the mother. Right. Should that be a death sentence? Rape, incest, all those kinds of things. I just think there's so many obvious exceptions where we have to preserve that right um, in a society that claims, right, purports to uh, value choice and freedom and uh, all the, all, you know, medical confidentiality and access to medical care and all that too. Right. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think there's any interest or, or has it become a hot button political football that's going to kick back and forth until the end of time? Do you see anybody you know, coming together trying to find a solution that meets both? Both, cons both concerns? You know, uh, I, like, I don't, thinking back to the 1990s was when, um, was when there, uh, Bill Clinton tried to articulate this vision of, a, he called it safe, legal, and rare, right? And um, you'd think that if safe, legal, and rare, or even rare yeah, <laughs> was, right. was your goal, yeah. um, then you wouldn't actually be, um, uh, take up the sort of the pro-life position as articulated by somebody like uh, Samuel Alito. The reason I say that is um, if you look at the, this development in public health uh, uh, called harm reduction, this harm reduction is most evident, for instance, in needle exchanges where somebody's going to, people are going to uh, use uh, opioids anyway, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, if they can't get it in a clean needle, they'll get it in a, a contaminated needle. Um, so if any way they can, right? Exactly. And yeah. so if you provide, um, if you provide clean needles, uh, you save lives, right? You you stop uh, HIV outbreaks in particular. Mm -hmm. If you provide, um, in fact, op op uh, heroin assisted or or medically assisted um, treatment, you can you can treat some people who can't be treated otherwise, for instance, with uh, cold turkey stopping or something like that. Are we talking about methadone, that kind of stuff? Sure, right, okay, yeah. yeah. And there are other versions of sort of opioids or, or uh, heroin derivatives that are similarly used. Mm -hmm. um, and and when, when people use those, they're actually administering the drug to people who are addicted to the drug. Um, and it saves lives. It's, it's in a, a supervised clinic setting, clean needles, uh, graduatedly less... Do lesser doses, and it helps some people get off when they couldn't get off otherwise. So that that's the harm reduction approach. You stop judging people, and um, and then and telling them just stop, just say no. Yeah. And instead, you say, well, how can we make it the case that this doesn't kill you? Right. Yeah. So that's the harm reduction approach to um, to opioids. There's similarly, there's a harm reduction approach to abortion, and the harm reduction approach to abortion is effective, high quality sex ed starting from age-appropriate age sex ed, starting from elementary school. Mm -hmm. uh, Pre-puberty. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, um, and then wide wide availability of uh, contraception, and wide availability of abortion. Mm-hmm. So, if abortion is widely available as part of a process of understanding that people are going to do this anyway, mm-hmm. right? Sex happens. People are going to um, get pregnant when they don't want the baby. People are going to have dangerous pregnancies. Crimes like incest and rape are going to happen and will sometimes yield pregnancies. If you recognize that these things are the case and take a harm reduction approach, you get safe, legal, and rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and a politics focused on um, extirpation, banning, uh, is a politics that causes the number of abortions to go up. It just makes them less safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I fear, uh, I had the same dread when I saw the draft opinion, I fear that that's where we're headed. Yeah, it's going to happen one way or another. Why not step in and try to regulate it to an extent and um, minimize right. the damage done? Yeah. Yeah, um, for a lighthearted uh, segue here, George Carlin, one of my heroes, once said that when we have a problem in this country, we declare war on it. We have the war on drugs, the war on homelessness, the war on crime. We never really do anything about it. We just declare war on it, right? <laughs> when you mentioned the less harm approach to public policy, it made me think about that. You know, what are we really doing? Right. Um, yeah. One thing I wanted to mention um, was the the free speech aspect um, of, of uh, human rights. Um, the, I think we talked about this before in a previous conversation. If we didn't, forgive me. Um, I thought it was fascinating when I found out that the ACLU, I think back in the 50s in New York City, made their name by defending the free speech rights of Ku Klux Klan members and neo-Nazis. The integrity involved in defending that disgusting speech, I don't even want to call it speech, it's hate-filled, right. vile, disgusting speech, but these people had the integrity and the respect for the underlying underlying issue that's more important of free speech to protect those people and basically ensure that they would be able to go out there and do all that stuff. Um, that's mind blowing to me. I, um, can you comment on, um, you know, what they did, um, how important free speech is? I'm sure it's a common team in your work Yeah. in the department. Yeah. So, so it's, there's an important, there's a, an, a difficult an important, but difficult line that has to be drawn between uh, because it's possible to um, commit violence with speech, right? So um, a credible threat of violence um, is actionable, right? And so that's one reason that people argue for hate speech codes and so on, mm-hmm. right? So if if um, somebody uh, is subjected to um, to uh, threats by let's say uh, by people who are carrying guns, right, and they come up and they start threatening a person and um, attacking them on the basis of their race, or, or it, doesn't even, it doesn't even have to be hate speech, let's say. If somebody who makes a credible threat of violence against you, the, all they've done is they've spoken, but still it's assault, right? Because, mm-hmm. uh, because the credible threat is an attack, mm-hmm. is verbal violence. And so one of the, it's a hugely important line to draw between uh, speech that offends and even speech that, up to the line that traumatizes, right? So the case that you're describing uh, is, if I'm, if I know exactly what you're referring to, is uh, was in Skokie, Illinois, which was a heavily Jewish suburb of Chicago. Is it or was a heavily Jewish suburb of Chicago? I don't know what the demo- demographics are now. Um, there were a lot of uh, Holocaust survivors living there, and the neo Nazis were going to parade through Skokie, right? Mm. Um, and uh, and so th- so this was uh, uh, was it speech? Well, it's as you say, it's like. Uh, placards 
Nazis sure slogans like and it. signs look like speech, Expression, right? yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, was it likely to traumatize? Yes. Is speech that traumatizes on the hate speech slash verbal assault side of speech, or is it on the speech side of speech? Mm-hmm. And the ACLU s- s- draws that line pretty far over, mm-hmm. and there's a lot to be said for drawing the line pretty far over. So they're pushing the boundary of leaning more towards it might be, be traumatic, traumatic and offensive as as opposed to the other side where I don't want to say anything because right. it might hurt someone's feelings. Well, that's okay. right. So, yeah. yeah, if you push it, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah. exactly. If you if you didn't, their view is if you didn't push it that way, you'd push it the other way. And, right. And speech that, that, you know, merely offends is going to be made illegal. And I think a really important aspect of the ACLU, going back to its founding, I, think, I guess over 100 years ago now, um, is... Uh, I just lost my train of thought thinking of whether they're a hundred years ago. It's okay. Um, You're pushing the boundary of what's offensive and what's traumatic versus what's violence. (laughs) Yes. And, and one important reason for doing so is, is the argument that, you know, it might be nice to stop Nazis from speaking, but in the long run, it's not only going to be Nazis that get stopped from speaking. Mm -hmm. This, as soon as you give the government this power to stop people from offending well, who's going to get who's going to have this deployed against them, right? And you see right now with um, Blue Lives Matter and Back the Blue kinds of things. Well, who is it that now has the power to say you don't get to say, right? You don't want the police to be able to say, um, oh, nobody gets to criticize the police because it offends us, right? So yeah. these kinds of things don't tend to stay with the people who want them at in the time of, a, of an emergency. So, yeah, I heard that articulated by a free speech expert. I forget his I forget his name, but he said. Uh, History has taught us over and over again the last group of people you want you want it to empower with the ability to determine what is acceptable speech and what isn't is the government, the ruling class. And he said, you know, right right now Biden's in office and it's a Democrat um, House and Senate and that kind of thing. You might want you you might like those folks. You know, they might have your values and your politics, right? You give them the power to do that. You're also giving the subsequent administration to do it, and you're probably not going to like. You know, maybe not the next four years, but four years after that, eventually, we know there's going to be Republicans and conservatives in there. You're also giving them the ability to do that, too. And they might start knocking on your door and telling you that your speech is unacceptable and you're not going to like that. Right. So I thought that was really a good way to articulate that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's a, a knee-jerk reaction in our society. Well, I don't like what Trump said. So he should be taken off of Twitter. I'm not a Trump fan. Anybody that knows me knows that. I don't care for the guy for a lot of reasons. However, he didn't incite violence. Maybe the January 6th thing. Okay, maybe. Right? I, I, I personally believe at best he indirectly incited that, and at worst he calls it. I mean, that's reasonable, right? We can argue about that, and that's fine. But the man, in my opinion, should not have been taken off of Twitter if, and this is a big if, Twitter is interpreted as the modern, uh, what do they call it, the, uh, the, the, per, uh, the not the marketplace, but the, um, the forum, the public forum, right? right? Yeah, the public square. Yeah. yeah, the public square. And there's an argument that it is the modern digital incarnation of the public square, right? Right. Another layer to that is um, that it's also a private company with stockholders who own it. And we believe in private property in this society, right? Yeah. So do they have the right to determine what the, the, the rules of the road, so to speak, when using their platform to express yourself? So they're all interesting questions. And I, Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, yeah. Please uh, chime in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, th- so this has been uh, an issue since, um, since there was a free speech case in a shopping mall, maybe back in the 80s, where in the, I, I believe that um, it might have been a restricted case, but a court found that a shopping mall couldn't evict people for expressing political opinions. 
because the shopping mall had be- become the public square. Oh, they argue but, that in one on, on that yes, on that basis. Yeah, and okay. so so there is a case to be made that anything that becomes the public square um, has has an uh, uh, an accentuated uh, duty to ensure that people are free to speak. Interesting. Now, the, there are two problems with this. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that just to the extent that something becomes the public square, the public then has a very strong stake in having a say about what it's like, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea of the public square being owned privately is a, is a problem. Mm. And I, I think the person who said, you don't want the government to have the power to determine what you can say... Right. You also don't want people who own the private property owners who right. own right, uh, uh, the public square to have a right over what you can say. And so we've seen this in Louisville and Fourth Street Live. Yeah. Private, and they can evict people who aren't dressed right. Right. right? And so what what happens to the the public square? So that's um, that's an important sort of caveat there. Uh, and then second, um, the public square. Uh, there need to be traffic rules for the public square. And some of those traffic rules have to do with speech. Mm-hmm. So if somebody says something and then there's a massive pylon, uh, you know, uh, on Twitter, say uh, women who are on Twitter get threats of rape, threats of killing, much more than men Stalking, do. Stalking, violence, right. harassment. Exactly. You name right. it, yeah. Right. And so so uh, those are all speech acts. So all threats of violence, you know, uh, doxing, those are all speech acts. and Misuses of free speech. That's right. Yeah. And so uh, the, the square can be a public square with free speech only if there are certain kinds of speech that aren't able to gain a toehold. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, a, it's extremely complex. Uh, I just don't think it, it's important not to sort of fall on the side of, you know, like when, when um, uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter, he said he's going to make it completely open Right. And first of all, I think that's impossible because that involves, you know, every ad, every troll, every everything has has complete access to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Every threat of violence or rape or whatever has complete access. Um, So uh, and if that happens, then there are lots of people who can't speak, who will be shattered down every time. Mm -hmm. And so it ceases to be about free speech altogether. What's your personal opinion on that? You think Trump should have been banned from Twitter? Do they have the right to do that? You know, not everything you have the right to do, you ought to do. I'm sure this is a common theme in your, your classroom uh, for some of your ethics and uh, other courses. Can you talk about yeah. that? Should Trump, should he have been removed? And yay or nay, answer that. And then after we answer that, does Twitter have the right to do that? Can you comment on that? Yeah. Um, you know, so the punishment of world leaders, and, and even after he ceased to be president, I think there's a sense in which Trump is in this category the punishment of world leaders um, has a certain value uh, even um, over and above sort of the, the mere question of the punishment of a particular person. So if there's a, a private person with however many million followers and he's a real jerk on Twitter, um, and, and even if he incites violence, um, uh, there's, a, there's a better reason for not interfering, not banning for a private person um, with... And, and unfortunately, our, our international uh, criminal institutions, our international criminal court and um, international court of justice, they're not set up well for this. Mm-hmm. Um, but but world leaders, or people who are in positions of, a, of power and authority that aren't just private, I think that their actions have consequences is more important because it establishes the uh, the culture of the whole in a way that 
um, mm. in a way that like the a currently high profile private person doesn't. I think. So you're describing that <clears throat> distinction between a public personality versus a private person, but what about? What ought to happen? Should they be held to a higher standard? Is that fair? I mean, they're a citizen in a free society, a democracy. Yeah. Is it fair to you know hand that to them or to impose that label or that restriction on them? Or you're yeah. just kind I mean, of answering the more descriptive you yeah. know view of it. I mean, he he volunteered for public office. Nobody forced him to run for president. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and his his presidency was uh was an exercise in uh demeaning the office uh, it seemed like it and, yeah <laughs> and and you know maybe there's something there's something to be said for you know the whole idea like i remember back when george bush was starting the iraq war mm-hmm. anytime you would criticize the iraq war your the response would be well yeah. not just that you're anti-american but but that you should have respect for the office. And, and my thought was like, this guy just launched an invasion without cause. Right. Why should I respect anything he does, right? right. And uh, so, so similarly, like, I think there's something to be said for, you know, respect the office isn't a very good general rule. Mm-hmm. But, but that somebody in that position understands himself to be under a duty of... Uh, of decorum and respect for others and knows that his words carry great weight. Um, that, that's really important and, and isn't using the, the weight of his words for private vendettas and, or, or, or public vendettas, uh, such or as personal uh, gain for your own businesses or, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, so I don't know. In that sense, part of the, the, the question about whether, Twitter should ban a person isn't necessarily the question of whether whether he deserves to be banned in some mm-hmm. deontological sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something to be said for the the consequentialist reasoning that says, well, if it's going to make him less able to to pursue personal vendettas by getting his supporters to dogpile people, um, uh, or if it's going to, you know, well then maybe so, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, if it's going to, if it's going to improve the overall quality of the the public square so that people can talk better, mm-hmm. maybe so. I'm not sure it's done those things. I'm, you know, I'm in philosophy, not in, yeah. in IT public management like, uh, like Elon Musk is. So yeah. I don't know, but, um, I think there's a, there's a good case that the banning him was the right thing to do. And especially after January 6th, when, yeah. When he was well, kind of the cherry on top of the whole thing, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the culmination yeah. of all the hate speech and right. the uh, uh, what is it? Uh, volatile language and polarizing language, and uh, you know, one thing that is interesting with uh, with Trump uh, are, are the optics of things. I find myself uh, I figured this out a couple of years ago. And it really, really kind of changed the way I look at things, and, and particularly politicians and politics. You can support an idea, but when you do that. You need to step back from that and see what does that look like on the outside, the optics approach, right? And so there were a few ideas that he had. I I don't hate everything the man stands for. I think he did some decent things for the economy, and he helped fast-track the vaccines and stuff like that. But when you look at an issue where he was big on, like, the border, you know what I'm saying? I believe he has a fair case when he says that, that a country has borders and an ability to control those borders. And if it doesn't, by definition, it's not a country. I don't think that's so radical, 
But when you start deporting all these people and demonizing all these people, who, who let's face it, are just coming here for the opportunity to scrub toilets and make money, right? I mean, that's the majority of them, right? And when you demonize these people and you associate yourself with that issue, what are the optics of that? Who is disproportionately impacted by a policy like that? And it's not just that. Abortion, uh, free speech issues, uh, welfare, you know, lots of public, public issues, public policy decisions they almost, if they're bad, they almost almost disproportionately impact minorities, LGBTQ, the poor, children, right? right. When it comes to um, uh, public policy and um, politics, I'm, I'm very liberal when it comes to children. I'll tell you why. A, they didn't ask to come here. <laughs> <laughs> B, most of them don't have a voice to speak up for themselves. And C, I think there's enough resources in this country where every child should have fundamental basic access to health care, a decent education, food, um, a place to live, that kind of thing. Um, can you talk about the optics versus, you know, clinging to this um, this uh, kind of dogmatic, well, it has to be this way, I don't care what it looks like, versus the more subtlety and, and nuanced approach of examining the optics of things? Right. That's a great question. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that um, being in philosophy sort of doesn't help. Because in philosophy, you're often so focused on the principle that's being uh, asserted mm-hmm. that um, that it, there's a risk of of abstracting from the reality or abstracting from the sort of the, the empirical world in which the principle would have to be applied, mm-hmm. and then trying to and looking only at the principle, and and the result is that you can uh, you can do some damage um, mm-hmm. because you're. Uh, because you're not thinking about how it's going to work in the world. And so uh, I, the optics is a big part of it, but I think that what you're describing isn't just optics, it's it's what the real impact on people's lives is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, immigration is a great one, right? So we have these these um, these debates that really they're, they're affecting uh, huge numbers of people. And... Um, vulnerable people who have no representation. Yeah, vulner- and 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 the idea of trying to assert a principle against them, right? They should have come in legally, right? Um, well, you know, maybe so, but the but the legal immigration system is broken, mm-hmm. and so so maybe they should have come in legally, but maybe there should have been a way of coming in legally, mm-hmm. right? Things like that. That um, it's it strikes me that um, that. Uh, Resting or standing on the principle is uh, 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 can do grave wrong to people mm-hmm. uh, exclusively. Yeah, ex- yeah, that's right. So Aristotle has this uh, this principle that he calls uh, being an equitable person, and I I find this uh, really valuable ideal. And what an equitable person does, according to Aristotle, is not stand on his rights even when uh, the law is on his side. And so Aristotle's thinking about people who are in a position of privilege. Right? So his his uh, audience are Athenian citizens who are who are propertied males uh, who aren't, don't have to work for a living. So, but a lot of uh, philosophers who read Aristotle now think that what he says about propertied males is how is what we should apply to everybody, mm-hmm. um, because the status of propertied males was those who had uh, full citizenship in the uh, and shared in the government of their society. And that's what we all aspire that all of us should should have, and so, so when he says uh, somebody who, uh, as an equitable person, uh, is uh, 
takes a little bit less than what he had a full right to. Um, so it doesn't stand on his rights. When somebody else is, so some, something really important for somebody else is hanging in the balance. Mm -hmm. right? And so, and I think that's clearly the case with um, undocumented folks here or people who, who overstayed their visas are working bad jobs. They're, the badness of their jobs is exacerbated by the fact that their employers know that they have no rights and no recourse. Mm -hmm. They can't join unions. Um, you know, those are extremely vulnerable people. No it, OSHA protection. Right. No legal, really, standing, That's right? That's right. Yeah. And, and constant fear that they're going to be found and deported. And, that, and indeed, the... And that's the, exploited. Exactly. That's exploited. Immigration raids can be done um, as, a, as a, you know, punishment for speaking up on the job. So Yeah, you mentioned the power uh, and the influence that the privileged class has over the non-privileged. Reminded me of another... One of my favorite George Carlin quotes, he said, uh, the longer you live in this country, the more you realize that America's number one product is the creation, manufacture, marketing, and distribution of bullshit. And if you want proof, here it is. The country was founded by a group of white male slave owners who told us that all men are created equal. That's right. And that's a little oversimplified, I'm sure, for comedy purposes. But there's yes. some truth there, right? I mean, to stand up there and proclaim that all human beings are created equal right. Oh, by the way, my, my slave is serving us our meal now right. against their will. I think there's some truth there, right? I think that needs to be said. Um, one thing that's come up in the various topics we've discussed today, and I think it's important, particularly when you're advocating for the role of academia, general but philosophy specifically, it's okay to have a conversation and not arrive at some clear-cut answer, right? Yeah, Side yeah. A has this argument, and they think it's that way, and that's interesting, and it has its own merits, and side B has the same. I'm sure you run into a lot of that in your classrooms, uh, your discussions with your colleagues and students. Right. I think uh, so much, particularly in our Western modern culture, is hammer it out and come up with an answer. Right. Well, things are very not very binary in that way, right? Most things, if you think about them with an open mind, and you're sourcing different perspectives on it and considering those sincerely, there's not always an answer, and I think that's okay, right? Yeah. Can you comment on that? Yeah, the, the philosopher John Rawls, who was uh, one of the main political philosophers of the last century, really, um, uh, he calls this the burdens of judgment. If two people start from a position of agreement about major issues, um, the more they think, the more they learn, the more they talk, they're actually likely to diverge rather than converge. So it's Interesting. Not, yeah, so it's not like... Um, it's not like math, yeah. right? Where, where if three sixth graders get three different answers, if they work together and the teacher probably helps, they're yeah. going to get the, to the single correct answer. Yeah. Um, whereas with issues, social issues, uh, philosophical issues, moral issues, political issues, we don't uh, expect convergence. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I see this in class. I mean, I just finished teaching my ethics class this semester. Um, and, you know, in ethics, what you do is you teach a bunch of different theories and you sort of teach them all as attempts to answer a, s a set of questions, mm -hmm. like how should I live? And then you have a bunch of different theories that tell you different ways. I mean, there's a lot of convergence, don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. on the obvious things. But, but there are differences in sort of the fundamental uh, commitments of those theories and then in certain implications of them. And then, th then at the end, you have to go back and say, okay, the mere fact that there are all these different theories, like... You weren't expecting, or don't you, can't, you don't get to expect that I'm going to tell you now on the last day of class which one of them is correct, right? Yeah. That's just not how it works. Yeah. Why doesn't it work that way? Is it because relativism is true and it's just whatever you want? Mm -hmm. And the answer is no. It's not because relativism is true and it's just whatever you want. It's uh, you have to go through the, the the commitments and the arguments for each one, and 
and go with the one that you think is closest to the truth or revise it in a way that makes it better. But the, the truth and what ultimately the test of rightness is if you can live with it, mm-hmm. right? Sort of like fundamentally. Pragmatic. Yeah. In the end, it's yeah. gotta be, um, yeah. uh, that, that you're, you're always answerable to that, to, to logic, truth, and the final test of if you can live with it, right? If you're, if you're, if it calls on you to do unaccountable harm to people, it's probably wrong. So mm-hmm. let's try to figure out, right? You're still accountable to that. So you don't get to just sort of plump for whatever you feel like. Yeah. Right. It's kind um, of a pass just to right. do whatever you want. Yeah. But still you don't, you can't expect that, that we're going to converge either. Right. And so that, so that means that good people who are, sorry, good people okay. who are rational, uh, they're, they're being, um, Open-minded, uh, conscientious, dialogue open-minded. Back and forth. Yeah. They're still likely to diverge, and that's what allows conversation to to continue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, I've he- heard someone once describe the truth as like a wet bar of soap. <laughs> you ever heard that? The harder <laughs> you try to grab it, the slippier it gets. <laughs> right. right. I also remember I took a I think it was, I think it was an anthropology class in my undergraduate studies at U of L, um, and the professor kept basically saying essentially essentially i'm paraphrasing here that cultures decide what's right and wrong and that always bothered me back then you know <laughs> yes but also back then i was pretty arrogant compared to where i am now i thought i thought i had everything figured out i thought i was ra- raised christian and so i kind of believed kind of didn't but that idea of an absolute right and wrong universality objectivity really it took me a long time to shake that idea and i look back on it now and i'm I'm like, yeah, cultures kind of do decide what's right and wrong, right? I, I mean, for, I need you for to a, unlearn that. <laughs> yeah, for for a multitude of reasons. You know, um, one thing that really uh, changed my look on that, my outlook on that, was about ten years ago when I I got on this physics kick, and I don't know how much you know about quantum mechanics. Well, Not very much. I'll do a brief little summary here. So Newton and Einstein gave us practically everything we need to know to net. To navigate the familiar everyday world, where if I roll this pen across the table, I can conclude that if it ended up there, it passed through every point in between and started here, right? Predictability, certainty, right? Everything's logical. Well, around the early 1900s, physicists started probing the structure of the atom and understanding the way that subatomic particles behave, electrons, protons, neutrons, and all all the deeper, more fundamental particles that make those up, and it doesn't work that way. An electron can go from here to here and not pass through any space in between. You know, it can also be here and here at the same time. It can do all these bizarre behaviors. And so the concept there was called locality, um, locality, you know, you know, local, right? So if something happens here, by virtue of the fact it's happening here, it can't be happening there. Simple, intuitive, everyday concept works great. In fact, Newton's laws of gravitation and motion gave us enough to land a man on the moon 200 and something years later, right? Pretty good. But when you when you, when you magnify things and you get, get down to that quantum level where it's subatomic particles, things don't work that way. And I resisted that for probably seven or eight years. And there's still this, I haven't totally given into it, but there is still this internal, I'm like, that's not the world I see. It's not intuitive that way. But by reading and listening to podcasts and uh, exposing myself to more and more quantum physics and listening to physicists, I've come around to that idea, and it's really opened my mind to a whole new world of possibilities. 
Um, I would think there's some parallels there with uh, philosophy. You've kind of got this surface that's accessible and uh, it's intuitive and it makes sense and you can get to it and it's not hard to maneuver your way through it and navigate it. But underneath there's this whole world uh, that we don't understand. Um, I just just think that's fascinating uh, to think about. Can you comment on that at all? How the parallels in philosophy and, uh, you know... If you don't have anything to say, that's fine too. Yeah. No, no, just one thing. And I don't know very much about uh, quantum physics, but what's interesting is that that the the way to to determine whether the world really is as quantum physics says, it's ultimately going to be answerable to tests that can be done in the empirical reality that we know, yeah. right? And so, and and so, there's a a kind of paradox there, sort of fundamentally. I'm not saying it's not true. Paradoxes are not necessarily not true. They're just mm-hmm. right. Um, and uh, and uh, philosophy is kind of like that as well. So so you get um, a wide variety of theories about what what uh, material objects are, for instance. Um, and uh, and uh, like there are some views, you know, that that uh, that um, one of my favorite views is we're just uh, four dimensional. If you think about uh, space-time as four-dimensional, mm-hmm. then we're just concatenations of particles that are, you know, passing through four-dimensional space-time, space-time right? And yeah. there's nothing else to us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another view that three-dimensionalist that says that that or the organisms are the only complex things that exist, mm. and uh, why? Uh, what like what's part of an organism? Well, there's no there's no uh, hard boundary to your body, right? Uh, organisms have a shape that's kind of like a storm. Uh, and so they have at their core, they have the, they have life, but then everything that gets caught up into them, like you think about like a hurricane, what's part of a hurricane? Well, it's this droplet of water that gets caught up into it and then spat out. And then it's no longer part of the hurricane. Yeah. Right. And so if we're like that, um, we're, those are two wildly different and yet uh, uh, conceptions of what a, a person is mm-hmm. and then also or any material object that the second view implies that there's no such thing as this table for instance because it's a non-organism complex object and that view eliminative materialism is there are no non-organism complex yeah. objects and so um so the the um on that, those philosophical views, they're both very different from each other, but also very different from anything that seems intuitive to us. But ultimately, the best we can do to defend them is if they make sense of the commitments that we have and can be defended in terms in terms of the best modes of argumentation that we have. Testable predictions, empirical reinforcement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a it's a sort of a paradox of all of these sciences that whose whose subject matter is the invisible. Or you know the the, the non intuitive you know mm-hmm. you mentioned convergence earlier and the phenomenon of the more people talk about something they started out agreeing on they're more likely to diverge and that's a good thing. Conversely, is convergence after that point a, a sign that something's gone wrong? Right? <laughs> I mean, is that can you conclude that from? That's a, that way of thinking, or that's interesting. Is it a red flag, so to speak? It's like you know these two guys have been hammering out the same issue. They've agreed on for four years, and no one's made any progress. It's probably a good sign that something's not being uh, sinc- sincerely uh, considered, right, or you know, critically I, examined. That's a really interesting question. I, I guess I wouldn't say that as a general rule. Like, I, I, w- I would hope, I mean, one of the reasons to go into philosophy is that you hope that if you try to get to the heart of a question, you can convince some people, you know, or be convinced by them. 
And that involves sort of uh, taking, going from divergence to convergence. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, but uh, convergence isn't, I guess I would say that neither convergence nor divergence is, uh, sta- is a static state, maybe is the way to put it, is a state. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that we should expect them to be, um, you know, converging and diverging um, uh, over over time. And what one of the reasons that sort of a, that a shared politics is possible is because even if we can, um, even if we diverge on really important uh, fundamental questions of like what a human being is or what rights people have and so on, um, we can converge on certain policy options. Even if we converge on certain policy options, we may then diverge about how to develop them after that. Mm-hmm. So you get you can you can get shifting coalitions. One of the problems I think with our politics now is that instead of shifting coalitions, we get tribes mm. and, um, and tribalism. And tribalism, yeah, yeah, and yeah. tribalism is dangerous because it makes it impossible to have a conversation where um, where you're saying, okay, even if we can't agree on like fundamental questions A, B, and C, we can come up with a policy that will work for everybody, mm-hmm. right? Um, and if if the main goal, sorry, if the you're main okay. goal of of tribe A is to make sure that tribe B Mitch McConnell is the is the poster child of this because of what he said at the beginning of the Obama administration. Make him a one-term president, right? Yeah. To and the strategy to ensure that they oppose everything he does, even if they agree with it, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's that's a, a, a tribalism that is corrosive of the very possibility of a of a politics that we do together. Can I play devil's advocate with that issue? Sure. I'm not personally advocating this. I'm blaming it on the devil <laughs> Perfect. for intellectual curiosity. <laughs> But is there an argument that politics is a game and there's strategies and there's good strategies and there's bad strategies and there's winners and there's losers? And from that uh, position, is it a stretch to think that the people who voted for, say, Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump put them in office to do that very thing because because they feel that their list of issues, their policies uh, that they advocate for are right? And by virtue of that fact, the other side is wrong is there an, you know is, are you sympathetic to that at all that you know one thing um i admire about um, i don't i don't admire i respect what trump did is he mastered the game of politics very quickly i mean when he came down the escalator with melania it we're talking what august 2014 or something like yeah, that maybe later yeah. yeah and gave that press conference you know uh, they're sending their rapists here and their killers and all this stuff Everybody that I saw on both sides said, oh, this guy is a clown. He's not serious. This is, this is at best a trial run for his latest reality TV show. Right. And the man went and systematically destroyed, what is it, 18 other uh, entrenched uh, career politicians and lobbyists and attorneys and uh, business leaders right. to win that nomination and then to beat Hillary Clinton, whose um, presidency it was supposed to be orde- ordained eight years prior when she lost to Obama, right? I consider myself, I try to be open-minded, and even though I don't care for him personally, I respect the game. And he played the game masterfully, right? And he won. Can you comment on that? Is there an argument for that, or is that too uh, distasteful for you? <laughs> no, I think it's it's important to think about what we mean by a game. So I think when, uh, and I'm not 100% sure which way you mean it. Uh, when you first said it, I thought you meant it, in one way, um, and that is this: when people say that uh, you know politics is a game, or so, it's all just a game, or something, um, the idea is that um, uh, people are pawns, and uh, there's some game being played at a high level, and we're the playthings. Mm. And I think that vision, and I, I actually 
in that sense, right, where, where um, a game is a, it's like an attempt f- uh, for people to get their own benefit and they'll use anybody else to do so. And we're assuming it's a zero-sum game environment too, right? Yeah, that's okay, right. Yeah. That's right. And so um, I, th- I think when people say it's all just a game with that meaning, uh, I s- sometimes worry that politics is all just a game in that meaning, mm-hmm. and that would be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my view, in my view, and I, I do some work in the philosophy of games, and I'm a big fan of games, mm. um, but the, the important thing about a game is that nobody plays uh, involuntarily, right? So a game, you're only playing a game if you're uh, voluntarily playing it, um, and uh, you are aiming at the goal so that you can have the activity um, of, you know, uh, for, the, for its own sake, right? That's, so that's what makes something a game. You sort of choose a goal uh, and you accept rules in the pursuit of that goal so that you can enjoy the activity in the interim. And we all play by the rules. Yeah, that's right. And there's a respect for the game itself. That's right. And, yeah. and, but crucially, all the people are players and not play things, not pawns. That's an important distinction. Yeah. And, and um, so I think that in, in, if you think about politics as a game in that sense, uh, what, I would, what I would prefer to say is that... Um, uh, uh, we, we might even think about um, justice as a game. If you think about it, it's establishing a set of procedures that we can follow to mm-hmm. achieve justice, and we're playing cooperatively with others. Now, within cooperation, there can be competition. So my favorite example is when you get together with some people to play basketball for an afternoon. Mm-hmm. But you, you don't play one game of basketball for three hours, right? You choose up teams. You play a game to 11, if one team was way better than the other, you shift the teams around, right? Why? Because the competition enables you to have the have fun. When but you're rebalancing the field too, right? That's so, right. Right. It's yeah. within a cooperative structure. Yeah. And so I think if we think of politics as it's absolutely it's competitive, and if and and you do what you can to win, provided that every person is a player and not a plaything, uh-huh. and, and playing it, by the rules, and playing by the rules, respecting the spirit right. of the game. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and I, I don't think that that in politics you would you wouldn't expect uh, you know oh let's change up the side so that the other side can win sometimes the the mechanism for that though yeah. is that the other side has a way of poaching your players and that is by poaching your um, your ideas mm-hmm. and so the way democracy should work is as a game in that sense mm-hmm. so that if the Democrats are out of power the best thing they can do um, to gain power. Is uh, is they can show as it were they can they can poach some of the players from the Republican side by saying here w- you'll actually succeed better if you do A B and C than you will if you do what they want you to do and the people say oh so you so I will yeah right and and that's that's an effective game of politics as opposed to gerrymandering and redistricting right and all exactly. that kind of stuff yeah. right if the Hacking elite gets the to choose their voters versus the voters getting to choose their elites it's yeah. exactly the opposite i'm so glad you made that point because the way i, de- I described it sounded kind of like i was on the sidelines just kind of watching the show and you added some real substance to that and what came to mind when you said that was there's too much on the line for this just to be a game right right yeah there's, yeah. uh, there's too many people that are disproportionately impacted by these policy changes. There's too many decent people who uh, are humble and honest and all they want is an opportunity to go to work, right. do honest work and come home and take care of their families and send their kid to a decent school and pay their mortgage. Basic stuff, right? There's too much on the line yeah. to just gamify it and just observe right. it from the sidelines, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Certainly, if we think about the game in that in that first sense, where those people are playthings, mm-hmm. right? And if their loyalties are are to be toyed with, then we're we're lost. I think de- democracy is impossible with that model, where mm. it's sort of the advertising model, where you know, um, uh, what's that line? If you don't, if you're if you aren't a paying customer, you're the product, right? Where, oh, okay, uh, I like that. Yeah, it's for like for. For apps, I try to remember that. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, because they're harvesting all your demographic information, all your exactly. private. Yeah, yeah, and so and and that kind of inversion becomes possible in in power, especially in power relationships and so on, where where the yeah. kind of person that you're describing, who just wants to be able to live their life, yeah, they don't have the time or energy or knowledge to keep full track of, you know, what you know a bureaucracy is doing or even what the elected officials are doing from one thing to the next. Mm-hmm. So it's essential that that we not so we we safeguard against that kind of inversion of the power relationship that that makes the everyday person the plaything mm-hmm. everyday person needs to be one of the players even if they're not you know as it were the team captain or something like that yeah that's a great point people need to have skin in the game yeah i remember one thing i know, I know we're picking on trump here but there's so much material there <laughs> i can't resist his uh Going back to, I, th- I think, a year before his re-election, uh, re-election date, spreading all this paranoia about election tampering and fraud, I heard someone really insi- insightful comment on that. He made a great point. He said, in a democracy where, where there's some, some basic understanding that the pro- process is, is relatively clean, to go around and sow the seeds right. of election tampering and fraud and all that is very dangerous, right. extremely dangerous. And I think it gives you some insight into his mindset. That doesn't matter to him. Right. What That's matters right. to him is I pers- I personally believe that man has no political uh, um, philosophy at all. If you go back and look at his comments prior to running as a Republican, you, you could add them all up, make a case that he's a moderate Democrat or a liberal, right? I think that he saw a path to becoming president, and that was the last notch on his belt after dating all these supermodels and building all these businesses and conquering TV and all this stuff, right? I saw that was the last thing for him to do, and I am convinced that he, if he saw a path to getting to the White House, being a Democrat, he would have done it. Um, Do you agree with that? You know, I don't know. I mean, I I just don't know. Uh, I I think that the... um, I, I yeah I, th- I guess I would say I don't I don't think he cared about the party and we would have all been better off if uh, the Republican Party had been a stronger party right so the so uh, there's a political theorist um, Jacob Levy at McGill who has this makes this distinction uh, ha- uh, strong partisanship weak parties and mm. one of the things that parties do is they have a longer lifespan than any official who's elected mm-hmm. in, under them and so. Um, and so the party has an interest in making sure that that what it does now is still going to be palatable in ten years. Mm-hmm. It has an interest in not uh, not cheating to win this election because it knows that mm. um, it, the other party will cheat worse to win the next election. Mm-hmm. So they they keep the um, the the what's the word the it's a built in incentive to keep the integrity of the process yes, intact, the right. le- the legacy of the party. That's right, and yeah. because. Um, Parties have become so weak, and the Republican Party in particular has become so weak. Yeah, we'll take um, anybody that can win. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it, right? So they they were unable to coalesce against Trump. Yeah. And and if you look at, and I don't know, I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly if this is parallel, but 
um, uh, Bernie Sanders was was an independent, running as an independent, or has always been an independent, and ran for the Democratic nomination. Mm-hmm. And it had a lot of ideas that, love him or hate him, were were toxic to the Democratic Party elite. Mm-hmm. The Democrats are still there's it's a weakening party, but it's not as weak as the Republicans. And so they were able to coalesce to prevent Bernie from winning. Yeah, twice, right? Twice. Hillary, Hillary <laughs> yeah, and Biden, right. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So. Um, and the Republicans couldn't do that with somebody who was a much more serious threat to their own establishment than yeah. Bernie was to the Democratic establishment. Yeah. Um, and so, so I don't know if um, if Trump could equally well have come up as a Democrat. But yeah. I think I. But I think you're right that that he didn't care per se about the party. He cared yeah. about himself. Yeah, I wasn't arguing that he would win as a Democrat, but but I, I was arguing that he would take that pass yes. if he's. Th- Saw so that being the most likely path to getting what he yeah, wants. Yeah, you mentioned that, yeah. Bernie. There's lots of things to like and dislike about Bernie, but I respect that guy because he's authentic. I am a what does he call himself a revolutionary socialist? Yeah. I mean, why would you lie about that, right? I mean, <laughs> I think he calls himself a democratic socialist, but he wants a political revolution. There you go. But the rev- there's so much fractionalism on the left that revolutionary. So I think those are Trotskyists. Or that something can, like that. that so. can mean a lot of different things. <laughs> that's right, right. Exactly. That's right. What's your flavor of social uh, socialistic totalitarianism? Are <laughs> you more of a Leninist, a Stalinist? Right. A, yeah. The, yeah. A Nazi. Um, a friend of mine made a re- really eloquent observation. We were talking about Trump and his appeal and how he convinced, you know, love or hate the guy, he convinced 70 plus million people to vote for him. You know, uh, these are people that like to lecture us on morality and values and they vote for a guy uh, who arguably doesn't have a moral you know, no compass out, out of his inner circle and himself. Um, but he made a really interesting point. I want to get your comment on this. He's, and he's a conservative, by the way, a moderate conservative. He said that um, Republicans in general and that side of the middle class that's moderate and could swing one way or the other got so tired of being told that they're racist and they're sexist and they're homophobic and they're xenophobic and all this stuff that they know they're not, but the culture has evolved to a point and it's influenced by the left where that's really pervasive. He said at that point those people said, look, they could have trotted anybody out there as long as he said a few buzzwords that were anti-woke, right, that they would have voted for anyone. And it reminded me, another friend told me about a book called Jesus and John Wayne. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah, he said that uh, the Republican Party in the last 30 years has gone from the party of uh, Ronald Reagan calling America the shining city on the hill uh, to... Uh, uh, Respect uh, moving away from these Jesus Christian based characters, inspired characters to to more more towards Trump. This shoot from the hip, Texas oh, style. You know, it's really interesting. I'd yeah. love to read the book sometime. Uh, can you comment on that? That because I personally, I um, important point I want to make for the audience here is I deliberately every day expose myself to what the left is saying, to what the right is saying, to what the internet is saying. I want to get a, a div- diverse collection of perspectives and insights and i could form my own opinion um uh i there's a lot of people on the on the right that i respected people like dennis prager and michael medved serious thinkers i don't agree with a lot of what they say in their policies but i I find them to be well thought out sincere people decent people i just happen to disagree with these people have by and large jumped on board with trump just because he's the hot political potato right now i've lost a lot of respect for them man Mm -hmm. i mean you don't have to be pope in my eyes to get to be president 
but there has to be a baseline of decency, right? Uh, doesn't that matter to these people? It doesn't. And then the, the irony is they lecture us on what's right and wrong. You know, can you comment on that? Um, there was a lot there. Sorry, um, unpack it and comment <laughs> on what you'd like to. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would. I I would avoid. Um, I think it's important not to overanalyze Trump's win in 2016. I mean, um, first of all, because he lost the popular vote, but secondly, because um, uh, you know, after two terms of one party, it's almost always the case. It's very rare to get a third term of the same party. I say that all the time. So, so statistically, it, it was so likely. Yeah, right, and. Um, and and uh, the uh, Hillary Clinton uh, for for right or wrong reasons, Hillary Clinton's negatives were so high mm-hmm. that um, that generic Republicans should have won after two terms of Democrats against Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And so um, so the fact that Trump lost the popular vote is a striking sign that that he was never he's never been all that popular, right? Mm. Um, and so. Um, and his, his approval rating never got very high either. I don't think it even hit 50% once while he was president. So I think it's important not to overanalyze it, like his victory as, as you know, by the, same, by the same token, it's important not to assume that anyone who wins is ever sort of the people's choice, right? So, so I think one big mistake that um, Democrats made in 2008 was thinking that there was a new consensus and that that it was expressed in Barack Obama, and mm. um, there wasn't ever a new consensus. And a, uh, a, an electoral college win is even an electoral college landslide is is not unanimity by a long shot. Mm-hmm. And so it's really important not to overanalyze either wins of either side. I think mm-hmm. um, as for uh, as for who gets, um, I don't know. I mean. You'd you'd hope. I mean, you'd think that the, that something that you could see that the way somebody treats other people should be an indicator of how they're going to treat the people. Mm-hmm. And I think that that at least that far, you want somebody in office who has who clearly has treats people the right way and mm-hmm. knows how people ought to be treated. Um, so, for that, in that sense, I certainly agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, we could talk about this and many other topics forever. Um, in, in the interest of keeping this uh, palatable time-wise for our audience, we're going uh, to shift to another segment of our show here. I want to spend a few minutes with um, with you talking about the philosophy department of UofL. I'm a big advocate for higher education. Uh, I'm so grateful for the education that I got from the University of Louisville in general and the philosophy department specifically. Can you take a few minutes to... Bring the um, audience um, up to speed on what philosophy is is doing now. I know you guys are involved in the community. Um, just advocate for the philosophy department. Um, tell people why why it'd be good to take a course or two and consider majoring. Um, do that if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so it's interesting. You know, um, up until about 50 years ago, most college students, when they were asked why they what they wanted out of college, they, w- they said they wanted to develop a meaningful philosophy of life. Mm-hmm. And humanities courses, philosophy courses were extremely in demand. Um, in the last 50 years, that's really changed. And there are a number of drivers of that, and some of them are more easily understood and some are less easily understood. Um, uh, but I think but I think that uh, whatever else is the case, whatever the drivers are, um, 
that's less viewed as something either that you can get in college or that you would want to get in college, um, either because you think you can get it elsewhere or should get it elsewhere mm-hmm. or that you can't get it in college and so there's no point going to college for it. And instead, um, people have a, tend to have a much more um, a careerist or transactional relationship to college, mm-hmm. and that's understandable. Um, and so, uh, so what has philosophy done in the intervening 50 years? Well, um, in our department, uh, we have a, we've shifted over the course of that time. I think there, was, there used to be a much more uh, uh, decided focus on the history of philosophy, which is, is really important. The people that I've mentioned, like Aristotle, you know, uh, it's really important to, sure. to understand what they said and, and why and what the arguments were and so on. Um, but more on uh, on contemporary problems of philosophy and um, ethics is a big one. So we have um, a real strength in healthcare ethics now. Um, we've just hired a clinical ethicist who will be arriving this summer. Um, uh, we have, uh, um, uh, I guess, three or four of us teach in the healthcare ethics MA program. Um, and we also have, at the undergraduate level, we have an ethics certificate that we offer um, to students who... They might not want to major in philosophy, but they, they want like uh, four courses in ethics oh. where they can get a, a pretty rigorous training in, in ethical theory, ethics in practice, ethics within their profession. Um, and, then, and then when they go out, employers know this is something that, uh, that I can count on from this person. They will, they will have thought about this stuff. They will have some, a certain amount of training and practice mm-hmm. in thinking about hard problems. And so if you're an employer and you're like, well, should I do X or Y? There might be an ethical aspect to that other than yeah. just the money-making aspect to it. And you might want somebody who, uh, who has practice with that. So we offer those, um, those ethics-specific specializations. Um, but also uh, we have uh, philo- uh, faculty in philosophy who are really closely aligned with uh, psychology, um, uh, both um, uh, the psychology of emotions, uh, uh, psychology of... Um, uh, linguistics, uh, la- language development, and so on. There are important issues in the philosophy of language and the philosophy of mind about how um, how we develop uh, language and what you know uh, how language is even possible, mm-hmm. how communication is possible, that kind of thing, yeah. um, and the role of emotions in rationality. Those are really important areas that are um, maybe it's not like seeing the the direct like wh- how am I going to get a job in the re- relationship between em- emotions and rationality yeah um but but understanding people in that way is a really can be a really important driver of entrepreneurship or of of success in the job market and so on mm-hmm. so um so philosophy is uh has been become more focused on on problems mm-hmm. that um that i think are are practical in in their nature yeah. um and even aesthetics so one of one thing that we've we did we got a small grant to do um to work with the theater arts department to put on a production of Plato's Symposium. Oh. And even though Plato's Symposium, that's the history of philosophy, yeah. 2,500 years ago now. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a meditation on, on what it is to live a good life, what love is and what, the, what goodness is. Mm-hmm. And um, so we got, uh, we got a theater arts uh, faculty member to work with students and a philosophy faculty member, John Gibson, who I think you know, who does sure. aesthetics, yeah. working with... Uh, those same students together to produce an online, it had to be online because of the yeah. pandemic version, a production of, uh, of Plato's Symposium, which you can still see on the UofL Theater Arts YouTube page. Kind of a cross-discipline collaboration. Yeah. Oh, yeah. cool. And, you know, theater is, it's, of course, in Louisville in particular, theater is a real 
uh, it's an important industry and, yeah. and having theater professionals who've been able to think through these kinds of questions and how to, how to bring philosophical ideas onto the stage, I think is really valuable. Yeah. Well, I'm, like I said, I'm a huge advocate for just learning. I'm a lifelong learner. Um, I always want to expose myself to lots of different perspectives and worldviews and thoughts and information. Uh, I recommend anybody that's uh, taking the higher, higher education route in college, take a, a philosophy course. It's usually a, a prerequisite on the, like the core, uh, regardless of what you're majoring in. My own anecdotal advice from that is don't, don't make your only in, interaction with a philosophy course logic. Logic is great. I love logic. I enjoyed it. It's math with words. It's really interesting. But take something a little more uh, nuanced. Take uh, ancient philosophy or uh, cognitive philosophy or political ethics, whatever it might be, right? Um, I think you'll really, if you, you know, there's, you know, you don't have to go on to major or minor in philosophy, but I think you'll get a better taste of the role that philosophy plays uh, in the world uh, than just taking a logic, logic course. And when I was at UofL, 20 plus years ago, it seemed like, oh yeah, you need a philosophy course, take logic. I hope that's changed <laughs> from the advisors. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. You know, uh, now we have the sort of the cardinal core curriculum. So if somebody's just looking for a core curriculum class, logic might be a class that they'll take, but, but it's equally likely they'll take a contemporary ethical problems course or whatever. And I, I mean, if I can just piggyback on what you said, um, you know, it, it, it's it's the rare person who is going to finish a degree in philosophy and go on to graduate school in philosophy. And um, much more likely is, well, many people go on to law school or some other professional school, mm-hmm. and philosophy is excellent training for that. Um, but what, what, um, what we're hearing these days from employers uh, is that they want people who have um, these career skills that are not the particular skill you're going to, I mean, the employer will train you in the particular, you know, software application or the particular method of their particular office right? Um, or their particular workplace. But what they want uh, and what employers 20 and 30 years out will want over a career where you might change jobs five times um, is, uh, is these sort of career skills like uh, critical thinking, writing, being able to read and digest information, being able to see multiple sides of a problem. Mm-hmm. And those are the skills that you get in philosophy, but also in, in the humanities more generally. And logic helps with that. Critical thinking classes help with that. Ethics classes, they help with that. Not, And it's not just for ethical problems. It's for all sorts of problems. And so... Um, and I think so. So that's my sort of propaganda pitch. Yeah. Um, you know, philosophy is is as it were the 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 career skill par excellence, no matter what you're going into. So. I agree. I noticed um, I wasn't the greatest student when I got to college, um, but, I, but I, once I started majoring in philosophy and taking philosophy courses, <clears throat> I noticed that I I became a better student in the other courses. Huh. I did better. I got better grades. I was more enthusiastic. It was really a, a lovely experience. Yeah. yeah so I highly recommend you guys check out um, the University of Louisville and their philosophy department. Do you want to give a plug to the uh, the website or any social media places where people can interact with the department? Oh yeah. So uh, golly, I, I should have had them written down. But we're both we're on Facebook and we're on uh, Twitter. Uh, okay. I think our students have an Instagram, but I don't know how often that's updated because okay. I'm too old to be on Instagram. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, 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 I think it's Louisville Philosophy. Uh, I don't even remember. Yeah, I'd probably type in U of L Philosophy. Yes. It'll come up, something yes, like that's that. Right. Um, Those savvy uh, youngsters will yes. find a way to find you on social media. Yeah. That's yeah. great. And then is it uh, louisville.edu uh, uh, slash forward slash philosophy, I yes, guess? Yes, exactly. That's right. Okay. Yeah. 
Great. Um, I wanted to segue to our next uh, topic, and that's uh, See Good to Be Good, which is a nonprofit that my wife and I started basically to help pe- people see examples of people doing good and being good. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so you can you can interact with us at seegoodtobegood.org. Um, we're, uh, we'd be glad to take uh, donations. Um, if you give a donation... Every expense of running See Good to Be Good comes out of my and my wife's pocket. So if you donated $10, all $10 would go to the cause. And right now the cause is a needs-based academic scholarship um, for someone to help uh, pay for their you know higher education. Fantastic. Um, and I'll have more details about that uh, down the road. But we're also looking for people who want to uh, contribute their time and their resources. So if you or anyone listens... Uh, I want to give back to their community and provide an example of how they've been successful or what are their keys to getting educated, having professional success, personal success. Please contact us uh, and interact with us. Um, I like to ask my, my guests a few questions. So here we go. Question number one, why are you successful? Uh, I mean, a lot of good luck. Uh, and... Uh, <sighs> Maybe that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair answer. I mean, you know, it. You know, I guess I, I, I think I, I work hard. Um, but hard, but lots of people work harder than me, uh, and don't succeed. And so, um, good fortune is is a driver of so much. And and that's one, that's one reason that I, I, you know, I think what you said earlier resonates so much with me. Like every kid needs to have a, an an equal chance to to realize their potential we're all in this together those children now will be the president eventually right, right yeah right. and so uh hopefully they'll take care of us when we're old and shriveled up <laughs> that's right you know be nice to your kids they'll choose your nursing home that's the <laughs> there you go yeah i think you and i are kindred spirits in many ways you're the first person to answer that question the exact same way i would answer it i've made some good decisions i've done some good things in my life i've been disciplined and followed some uh uh, some of uh, some wise life practices and so forth, but the vast majority of it for me is luck, man. So many people that have entered my life randomly and taken an interest in my life and helped me. Uh, um, I and you mentioned earlier, uh, there's people that work harder than you and are no are nowhere as successful as you. I feel the same way. There's a plumber out there working 80 hours a week right now, cleaning up, you know, God knows what's in someone's toilet and and barely getting by, right? Why do I deserve the life that I have? I don't. It's gratitude, you know. Um, I came uh, to a place, I think, around about 15 years ago where I had a life-changing moment where all of a sudden um, it occurred to me that I was taking myself way too seriously, Uh you know. And I realized in that moment that I am nothing. Like if I died tomorrow, some people would cry and they'd miss me and so forth and whatever, but life would go on. And in the cosmic sense, I'm an microscopic fraction of a grain of sand uh, when compared to the number of people that have come before me, the people that will hopefully come after me, the size of the universe, everything, right? And from that moment, I gained perspective and purpose and meaning. And I've been on a next level of uh, happiness and success ever since. It's hard to explain to people, but I think you understand from, from realizing that you're nothing, Everything comes from that, right? Yeah. I'm sure there's some um, philosophers who uh, uh, would agree with that too, right? And some philosophical uh, ways of thinking. It's so interesting to hear you answer that the same way I would. My next question for you is, why are you happy? Crossover. <laughs> I think we are kindred spirits, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I mean, again, you know, there's uh, uh, 
there's a there's a lot of luck in happiness too i must say but yeah. um but you know can i jump again please back on what you say please elaborate so w- one of the reasons i got interested in the philosophy of games is because um well, heavily influenced by this uh, Canadian philosopher named Bernard Suits, who wrote a book called The Grasshopper, Games, Life, and Utopia, which I recommend to everybody if I can. And I think I, I used to use it in Intro to Philosophy, but the students never liked it as much as I did. And oh. I was always so disappointed about that. <laughs> yeah, you could take the heartbreak <laughs> That's right. of their disinterest. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But um, one of the things that, um, that, that makes games so interesting is if you think about, um, if you think about our life, uh, as you say, right, nothing, in the end, we're not only in the end of our own lives, we're all dead, but the, the universe itself, everything we could possibly care about will be destroyed. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so the, the, the living has to be the value. And you, you set goals in the living. Uh, as I said before, when talking about politics as a game, you set goals in the living, not because the goals per se matter more than anything else or matter so much, but because by setting the goal and accepting constraints on how you pursue that goal, you make the living, you make the activity of the living valuable in its own sake. Worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I think that's, that's a big part of it. Like, I, I, I agree, you know, uh, the value has to be in the living because it's not going to be in something we get when we're done, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, the sun's going to supernova in a couple yeah. billion years. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, what did you do before that? Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think Einstein said, I'm paraphrasing here, stop praying to God for a miracle. Your whole life is a miracle. You're here. The fact that you exist, right? I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. Final question for you. Um, in To the extent that you're successful and happy, what obligation do you feel to help other people You know, who not, have, might not have re- reached the same level of success or happiness that you have? What, do you, what obligation do you feel to help those folks? Well, I guess I would say it comes, it comes back to the question of like why i'm successful like i think that one of the things that that as you as you uh grow up and mature right you you come to realize that um or at least at least i did my parents were both educated i was developed in a i was developed i grew Mm -hmm. up in a i grew up in in a canada i was groomed yes no (laughs) let's not use that i I was uh i grew up in canada a country where there was you know universal free health care and universal free public education um you know uh i was white i am white Uh, it's nice to be a white male right (laughs) and in in canada at the time even better yeah yeah Um, and um you know i'm jewish but the the immigration laws in canada had had uh had liberalized just enough for my family soon before that right if 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 my family had been trying to come to canada in 1939 yeah not so much right so did they immigrate from europe not directly they actually immigrated from the u.s uh, my family but my dad's uh parents had immigrated in 1918 just before immigration laws closed down so so just the sheer luck of that but those but those institutions those aren't just that's not just luck it was also injustice um, you know, uh, so see, like seeing how um, how the the ways that uh, unjust institutions have favored me makes it really important to me uh, that the that I not sort of continue taking advantage of mm-hmm. unjust institutions in ways that keep other people down. Mm-hmm. Like I, there's nothing I can do about the fact that I grew up white, a white male in Canada, you know, but you cannot participate. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, exploit or, that. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And yeah. try to change the rules and the systems so that those injustices don't 
keep on stepping on people. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's for me, that's like a real driving force. And I'm, I'm, I'm deeply imperfect at it, right? Uh, the sad thing is any, anyone who is a white male of a certain class and participates in the society as, that we have, mm-hmm. um, there's the, the injustice comes at you in your favor in so many ways. It's good and to be king. It <laughs> is, right. That's right. And so, so that, but that does yeah. create an obligation to work against the injustices. Yeah. So. I love that. It's funny. Um, I, I didn't know you were Jewish. My wife uh, is from a family of Jewish immigrants from Belarus. Oh, wow. They made it here uh, not speaking any English at the age of 10. Wow. Yeah. In and, what year? Uh, she would have been, uh, it would have been 1990, I think. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they won the lottery, so to speak, and were sponsored by the Jewish Federation here in Louisville. Uh, coincidentally, um, moved to an apartment complex about a half a mile f- down the road from the same road I grew up on. Wow. Old six-mile lane here in um, uh, Louisville, or J- J-Town. And uh-huh. we never knew each other until we met five or six years ago. That's and funny. Got married. And uh, um, no, you're not allowed to say this, but I'm going to say it because I'm that kind of guy. Jews are disproportionately educated, successful, interesting, creative. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You're not allowed to say it, but I like what Jerry Seinfeld said. If you're saying something nice about the race, it's not racist. Okay? <laughs> so, And I'm proud that my son is Jewish. Um, I'm, I'm proud of that. His middle name is Albert. Albert after Albert Einstein, my hero, the greatest scientist of all time and a Jewish fellow too. So um, you mentioned, um, uh, you mentioned something earlier about uh, this. Oh, with um, the Ku Klux Klan and the neo-Nazis and so forth. That stuff really resonates with me because we're a Jewish family. Um, You know, we have a a mezuzah on the door and we observe Passover and all that. And I personally am not Jewish, um, but I'm so happy that my son is in that exclusive group of people if you meet a Jewish person, there's a really good chance they're disproportionately successful, educated, interesting, creative, um, just great people, you know? Um, so, yeah. I, I have no You're comment. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, proof, proof in the pudding right there. So that's great. Um, yeah. So um, in closing, I'd like to reiterate um, that this is Professor Avery Cullors. He is the, you don't say chairman, you just say chair, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the chair. Because of, I get sat on. <laughs> okay. There you go. That's, that's the role. The chair of the philosophy department uh, at the University of Louisville. I hi- highly suggest you interact with those folks. And uh, I think uh, one course, even if you audit it as an adult, could change your life, right? Here, here. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for being here. It's yeah, thank you. a true honor to have you. I have all these notes here on things I want to talk about with you, but we ran out of time. Maybe you could come back sometime. Sure. Perfect. Yeah, Great. Thanks. Great. Um, if you would like to be a guest on our show or you would like help creating and or distributing your own podcast, please contact us for more information. Uh, I'd like to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible and hopefully successful. And uh, we will see you real soon on a future episode of the Respect to Math podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here.